0: It's been interesting, but the last few Sundays now, I've been talking about some fairly gnarly and difficult issues, uh, either theologically or doctrinally, uh, and the ones that have been coming up to me. You know, I get questions a lot. I get questions by email, sometimes by text, and you're all welcome to send questions, you know, the gnarlier the better, as far as I'm concerned. I, I love being able to dig into those places that are really giving us the most trouble. I mean... Is it so important that we answer a question intellectually? No, it's not. But if that intellectual question is a roadblock or maybe a brick wall between you and being able to confidently move forward in that fearless vulnerability we've been talking about, then by all means, let's talk about it. Let's see if we can work through it in such a way that you are able to move forward in confidence, knowing that God is with us and always there for us. That's the thats the key to everything that we're trying to do. And that's what we're going to be doing on Tuesday nights. We're really going to take the time to to listen. Maybe the band will be playing closer to half an hour, maybe 35 minutes, and we'll get as much time as we can just to be able to talk. We want to hear your stories. We want to hear your yeah buts and your what-ifs and what-the-hecks and what are you smoking up there, Dave? Any of that kind of stuff, just so we can get down to it and really... Talk about it and get each one of us as much as possible to a place where we can move forward. That's the whole idea. Um, you know, wanted to do that again today. I got asked another pretty gnarly question this last week. But before I get into that, I wanted to kind of step back because we keep talking about how important it is that we put everything into context. If we're going to be looking at a particular verse or passage in the Bible, we need to put it into the larger context so we can see what the author is really talking about One passage in in isolation doesn't really give us the whole picture. And even talking like this in terms of what we're doing here at the effect doesn't necessarily give us the whole picture. Um, Why do we call this place the effect? Have you ever wondered that? It's kind of an odd name for a church or a faith community, the effect. Thirteen years ago, as we were planning, and it was just about exactly 13 years ago. We'll be um, 13 years in May, 13 years old in May. About 13 years ago, we were sitting around and we were doing our planning and we were meeting regularly and and getting ready to launch the effect. And one of the things that we talked about was what is it that animates our faith community? Why are we even putting this into place? You know, I remember saying at our first Sunday, Southern California needs another church like it needs another Starbucks. So what is the purpose of the effect? Why are we doing this? And we talked about the fact that What we wanted to be able to do was to know that our faith and our belief system had an effect on our lives. And that effect was the effect of God's love. That if we couldn't see the effect, if we couldn't see the change, if we couldn't see the transformation, then how in the world is it that we can say that we're in love? How can we say that we trust God, that we are in love? in christ we can't say these things without the effect and so we were talking about that 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 was really it there needed to be this concrete way that we moved forward so that we could realize this effect and then we're thinking on oh, what are we going to call ourselves well, and we're talking about this and talking about it. finally marion just says how about the effect <laughs> duh yeah the effect We are chasing the effect of God's love. That is the context within which we do everything. We can talk about things in in terms of of abstract and, and esoteric and theological premises and whatnot, but it has to be tied to the effect. It has to be tied to how we actually get to this place that Jesus calls transformation that looks like Jesus' life. That's the whole reason that we're trying to do this. Now, at the same time, we're very aware that beliefs that we have have effects and have consequences. You realize that, of course. Beliefs have consequences. What you say you believe in your head is going to play out somehow in your life if you really believe it. And sometimes you don't even believe it with your head. Sometimes you believe it way down in the subconscious. That's what's really driving the bus anyway. But the idea is is that beliefs have consequences and effects in our lives. And certain beliefs and belief systems have very predictable consequences, very predictable effects. But if the effect that we're looking for is the effect of God's love, the effect of Jesus' life, and that's our goal, to get that. What is a central belief that will get us there? That's the question we're looking for. You can kind of work backward from there as well. You can say, okay, we want to look like Jesus' life. Here's what Jesus' life looks like in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Here's the way he chose. Here's the way he related. Here, so we can kind of reverse engineer and say, okay, what is the belief system that gets us there? We're looking at it all different ways because we really want to know. We want to attain this effect. We want to have our lives look like Jesus. So what kind of belief? What is the type of belief? What is the central premise that will get us to a life that looks like Jesus? Let me ask you this. What's the main complaint that you hear about churches all the time? You can shout it out if you want to. Phony. Hypocrisy. Isn't that the main thing that we hear all the time? These people in this church say this, you know, they preach this, but they act like that. You know, there is a discontinuation, a discontinuity between the two. They are hypocrites. You know, really, there are very few hypocrites in church, I believe. Because if you define a hypocrite, you know what a hypocrite really is? It's someone who believes one thing but preaches something else. And they preach something that they do not believe in, consciously, knowingly do not believe in for their own advantage or for their own gain. That's a hypocrite. And that's what Jesus was coming up against all the time. But... The church isn't necessarily full of hypocrites. It's full of people who have a central belief or a belief system that doesn't lead to Jesus' behavior. It leads to some other behavior. Now, they really believe what they believe, and they're in the, in, in sincerely trying to follow that belief. It's just leading them someplace else that they don't really want to go, or we would like to see them not go, at least. We've talked about in here several times that the means that we use... Must match the ends that we seek. Have you heard me say that before? The means, think about that if you haven't for just a second. The means we use must match the ends that we seek. Because the means that we use always match the ends that we produce. You get that? The way we act is the end in itself. If we want to work for unity, then we have to be unified. And that sounds like a catch-22, but it's really not. We need to practice the unity that we want to see manifested in our lives. We need to practice the life that Jesus lived right here and right now as the means to that end. If we're practicing anything else, it's going to take us there. And so these central beliefs that we have are really, really important. Let me give you an example Many of our churches are based on law. They're based on the idea of justice and God's justice. That God is a just God. The law expresses God's justice. And obedience is the prime directive in terms of our lives to obey the law. So if that really is the primary premise, the foundation of our relationship with God, what is the effect of someone who's living that primary premise. If you're living primarily under justice and under law, then the operative word is going to be reciprocity. You know what reciprocity is? You give something that you equally get back. That's reciprocity. Okay, We're going to give something and we're going to get something back. That's what the law does. It balances the scales. It creates contracts in which both parties... Are reciprocal; both parties get what they are. But it sets up this this disconnect, this dissonance between reciprocity and relationship, because we all say that our relationship is is the most important thing. We say that our religion is a relationship. But if we're living as if the premise is obedience to law and under God's justice, then really it's about reciprocity, and that changes everything. Have you ever had a parent, a teacher, a boss? A spouse who was an absolute stickler for the rules. Absolute stickler for the law. That every rule had to be followed absolutely to the letter. Have you ever had someone like that in your life? Now they get a lot done. They're very productive. This is really good for drill sergeants, <laughs> and it has a, a a really good effect in basic boot camp, right? where you've got to be able to follow those rules and follow that military command. But what does it do for the relationship you have with that person? If you had that overbearing parent, I've known three men who were raised by Air Force fighter pilots. You want to talk absolute adherence to the code? That's it. And every one of those guys was really broken. Every one of those guys found their father to be absolutely unapproachable, distant, if you think about the relationships you've had, whether it was a teacher, or a boss, a spouse, or a parent, whatever it was in your life, who was like that, what was the relation what was a relationship like? If they never let you slide, ever let you slide, if they never just took a day off and let you goof off once in a while, bend the rules with a smile. And realize that you are more important than the rules. We need the rules in order to have a group. We need the rules in order to produce what we're here to produce. But what does it say about the relationship if it's only about the rules? These people can be distant, rigid, judgmental, uncompassionate, sometimes condescending, and often self-righteous. Think about every complaint that you've heard about the church Can't you attach each one of those adjectives to it? The church, distant, rigid, judgmental, uncompassionate, condescending, self-righteous, creating an us-and-them sort of attitude. What we believe has effects. What we believe has consequences. If we don't have the right central belief to our faith, we're not going to end up at Jesus. We have to be careful here. I've got the another one now. This is the one that I was just asked about this week. <laughs> Person said, "What about predestination?" Y'all aren't holding back on me. Well, what, what did we talk about? It was salvation. It was uh, eternal life. Oh, gee, these tiny little subjects that you're bringing up. Oh, it was the role of Satan. You know, that was last week, Satan, and now predestination. You know, this is about as gnarly as it gets. This is about as divisive as it gets. The church has been fighting over these concepts for 2,000 years. Do you think we're going to solve it this morning? But I want to get us to the other side to see if we can move through a little bit of the complexity and get to simplicity on the other side. What is predestination? Well, it's the idea that God picks the winners and the losers before the beginning of time. That he predestined some of us to be saved and he predestined others that they were not going to be saved. Now, if you believe that, what is your relationship going to be like with God right off the bat? If you know that God created a certain amount of, at least half, maybe the majority of humanity, just as fodder for hell, for eternity, that he already knew that, had chosen them for that punishment forever, and chose others to be with him in heaven, that's already setting up a relationship that is dissonant, isn't it? This idea that God picks winners and losers sounds crazy, but where does it come from? Well... It's actually mentioned in Scripture. Well, that's going to complicate things. Out of all the possible passages that I could have chosen, I chose two. And if you take a look in your um, inserts or up on the screens, let's just read them and see what's going on here. This is Paul talking in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 4. And he writes, Just as he chose us in him. Okay? This This is Paul talking about God. Just as God chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Okay, so he used the actual word there, predestined. Now, of course, that's the translation from the Greek word, which can mean predestined. It can also just means to bring to completion or something that is predetermined. It can mean several things, but they're all along those lines. So here we are. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we'd be holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. All right, move to Romans 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Hey no problem there that sounds really good. Why didn't he just stop there? But no he had to go on and say for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Wow. Now what about all the rest of us who didn't get predestined, justified, called, and all that good stuff, you yeah? What is actually going on here? And let me back up for a moment. There are two things that we have to understand if we're going to make any sense out of these type of passages. And the first one is that the Jews, actually early Christians and early Jews, both believed that God is one. There is just one God who is a unity and this God is sovereign. And if you haven't heard that word before, sovereign, it means with absolute and unlimited power. Nothing can come against a sovereign. God is sovereign and God is one. And because God is sovereign, because nothing can come against God's will and prevail, everything that happens, happens because God willed it, ordained it, allowed it. Nothing could happen any other way except that God willed it, ordained it, and allowed it because God is sovereign. Does that make sense to you? If something happened, it happened because God willed it. That was the idea that they had. Now, that sounds like we are imputing God's intention for something to happen. But that's not necessarily the way they were looking at it. It happened because God allowed it to happen. And they would state it that way, as if the effect is its own cause, almost. It's, it's a weird idiomatic way of speaking. Many are called, but few are chosen. It sounds like God is choosing only those he wants, Really, the understanding of that is many are called, few choose to be chosen. The call goes out to everyone. There's only a few that are going to respond. And yet the idiomatic way that the Jews would speak that is as if God only chose these because these are the ones who chose him back. So obviously, ergo, therefore, God willed it that way. Okay, I'm hoping that makes a little bit of sense. I know it's a little screwy. The second thing is, is that if you're going to understand Paul, you have to understand the transition that he's trying to make between Jewish followers and Gentile followers. The Jewish followers, the ones that were Jesus' first followers, understood their following of Jesus within Judaism. That means within The purity codes and the dietary codes and the temple system and everything else. And so they were requiring Gentile followers who wanted to follow Jesus to first become Jews. The males had to be circumcised and they had to follow all of the dietary codes and keep kosher and do all of this stuff. And this was the main fight that Paul is faced throughout his entire missionary career you could take a look at every single one of Paul's books and you can find evidence of this fight in them. And if you want the main one where it really comes and smacks you in the face, go read Galatians. And you'll find exactly how deep that rabbit hole goes, how deep his anger goes to those who would try to put stumbling blocks and roadblocks in front of these Gentiles who were trying to come to Jesus and make them have to do the things that they had to do. There's one line, Galatians 5.12, you can look it up. (laughs) He is so angry at these Judaizers, these ones who are of the circumcision, that he says, you know, these people that are coming against you, I hope the knife slips. Now, he didn't actually say it that way, but it's the same idea. And the church has been fighting over that line for 2,000 years. Does he really mean? Because it means to cut themselves off is literally what it means. You know, does that mean to excommunicate themselves, to just go away? Or does it mean to actually mutilate themselves, as most of your translations will be? But you get the idea. He is incensed. This is a pitched battle that he's having. And every one of these areas is trying to make this transition through. Now, both of these early Christians, the Jews and the the Gentiles, believed that man had an inclination to evil, We talked about this, I think it was last Sunday, where the Jews called it Yetzer Hara, which was the inclination to evil that needed to be balanced by the inclination to good. But the Christians in the 5th century took it to the next level. Jews believe that everyone is born good. Early Gentile followers of Jesus had a slightly skewed belief, but Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century said that not only after the fall of Adam and Eve... Were we born with an inclination to sin? We were also born with original guilt. Not just original sin, but original guilt. This took it to a whole different level. We understand that we're born with an inclination to do things that are going to harm others in our quest to simply survive. But now we're born with the guilt of Adam automatically. If we're born with the guilt of Adam, and this is how we understand original sin, then we're born already separated from God. We're born already with an impassable gulf between us. And under our own steam, under our own power, our wills are not strong enough to be able to overcome that and get back to God. That's a completely different way of looking at things. And so when you put those beliefs together... A thousand years later, the reformers come on the scene, and they elevate it to an art form. (laughs) Martin Luther went his way, and then the reformers went another way, and the chief among them was John Calvin. You may have heard of him. John Calvin came up with five points that he thought were the theology that was their prime directive. It was their main idea. And it can be symbolized or or summarized by the acronym TULIP. You may have heard this before, T-U-L-I-P. The T stands for total depravity. This is what we just talked about. Every baby who was born is born with original guilt, with a separation from God that this baby will never be able to overcome except through Jesus. This is why though these churches, especially the Catholic Church and others, baptized infants. Those of you who grew up in the Catholic Church, you were baptized in an infant. Why? Because you were born with this original guilt, and they wanted to baptize you and get your soul ready as quickly as possible because if that infant died before they were baptized, they were going not to be with God. For a while it was limbo. Now that's gone. You know, The, the Catholic ideas have, have matured as well. But there's this idea of total depravity. We can't overcome it. It's not that we don't have wills. Our wills will never be strong enough to overcome the original guilt and the original sin. The U stands for unconditional election This means that God is sovereign, and this is the main idea of Calvin, the sovereignty of God. He chooses who is going to be elected to be saved and who is going to be unelected not to be saved. And that decision is made before the beginning of time, and there's nothing that you can do to change it. So we're born totally depraved, and God will choose who he is going to save and who he is not going to save. The L is for limited atonement. That means that Jesus' action on the cross is limited only to those that God has already chosen to be saved, and it's going to have no effect on anybody else. The I is irresistible grace. That means the grace of God will irresistibly pull those that God has already elected and won't have the effect on those that he has not elected. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints, which means that once you're saved, you will remain saved. You can't lose that salvation because God has already ordained it. Now, I don't know what your reaction is to that. It's pretty extreme, right? Right? Think of what the effect would be in a person who actually believed those five points of Calvinism, classic Calvinism. Now, to be fair, it was controversial from the get-go. And many of the other Reformed theologians had different ideas. There was another uh, a theologian called Arminius, and he his focus was on free will, and that was in direct contradiction with Calvinism. So there's all this stuff going on, and you fast-forward now 500 years later— and Reformed theology has really softened and has really moved more towards a, a middle ground. But these ideas persist. The TULIP idea in, in, in some mitigated form still persists. And what would be the effect of a person living under that belief system? If you really believe that God chose and didn't choose, well, it would be sort of a passive kind of relationship with God, wouldn't it? I mean, there's nothing you can do. He's going to do it all for you, and he either does or he doesn't. How motivated would you be to help other people to get saved, to get connected to God? It's sort of a done deal from the beginning of time. A person is, a person isn't. Ideas and belief systems have effects, have consequences. We need to take a look at our ideas and our belief system and where they are leading us. And if they're not leading us to look like Jesus because Jesus was anything but passive Jesus was anything but disinterested in another person's welfare another person's salvation and so all of this is pointing us toward this idea that we need to take a look at what it is that we really believe but wait scripture is not yet finished speaking yet take a look at a couple more take a look at John 12:32 This is Jesus speaking. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Not just some, not just the ones that I have chosen. I will draw all people to myself. Here's Paul again, who just wrote the first two that we looked at, right? In 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires all men, all women, all mankind to be saved. Peter, in Second Peter, starting at verse 3, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness but is being patient towards you because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God is for all people, not just some, all people. And look at the verbs here in these three. Drawing, wishing, desiring. You see the verbs there? They are describing God's intention God's intention is predetermined. God's intention is predestined, if you want to use that word. The drawing, the desiring, the wishing, but not the outcome. God's intention is predetermined from the foundation of the earth, that every one of us will be connected with him, but not the outcome. The verbs are telling us that. He's drawing, he's desiring, he's wishing, but he's not forcing He's allowing for people to choose. And we've talked about this before. Why would God allow us to choose if he knows that many of us are going to choose something other than himself, something other than love? Because real love, as God practices it, requires a free choice. If it's coerced in any way, if it's bought and paid for in any way, it's no longer love. And so this free choice is so important. People must have the freedom to resist, but the way is open for everyone. And this is what the reformers started to realize as they move forward as well. God allowing people to choose. So, like salvation, when we talked about the discrepancy between works and grace and we had two sets of, of scriptures that directly seemed to contradict each other, we got the same thing going on here. This idea of predestination, where it looks like God is predestining certain things, but then... Everything is for everyone all the time. And so what is going on here? How do we deal with this? Well, we've got that Jewish idiomatic pattern we talked about. We've got Paul who is trying to bring the Gentiles, the Jews, across to the Gentile side. If you look first at Ephesians, what is going on here? Just as he chose in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons. What Paul is trying to say here is that the Jews understood themselves as the chosen ones, as the elect, as the ones that God had already chosen, to the exclusion of everyone else. Paul is saying from the very beginning, before the foundations of the world, God intended and desired that the Gentiles would also be part of the family. Everyone would be part of the family. He predetermined and intended that they would be adopted into. Paul is trying to break down that notion of Jewish exclusivism and say, hey, the Gentiles can do this as well as Gentiles. It's what he's trying to get across to us. At some point, when you see that it becomes really clear what he's trying to do. It's not that God has chosen the winners and the losers. God is choosing everyone to be adopted in. Once again, I think the message comes to our rescue. And I forgot to actually mark that it's the message. But down at the bottom of the page there, take a look at how Eugene Peterson translates or paraphrases Ephesians 1. Long before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind had settled on us as the focus of his love, to be made whole and holy by his love. Long, long ago, he decided to adopt us into his family through Jesus Christ. What pleasure he took in planning that. He wanted us to enter into the celebration of his lavish gift-giving by the hand of his beloved son. And when you look at Romans, the context is that first line. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Everything else in that paragraph is showing how God does that. How does God, do, how does he cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are willing to work according to his purpose? Well, look at the way that Eugene translates That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him, After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end, gloriously completing what he had begun. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? You see how that's working? Whenever you think that you've got to this logical impasse, like something between free will and predestination, it's because you took a left turn at Albuquerque somewhere way back here, and you need to retrace your steps and then follow the path again and find out that there is no impasse in Scripture. There really isn't the contradiction here. The same thing is being said, but we just have to work for it a little bit. Predestination, as Paul is using it here, is about original intention, not forced outcome. This is what he's trying to explain. So after having gone through all of this, you may still be asking, is predestination true? Is it true? Now, I've tipped my hand and giving you my bias, right? You kind of know where I'm coming from. But the truth of the matter is, I don't know. Nobody knows. How would I know what Paul was really trying to say? How would I know the mind of God? How could anybody assume to know the mind of God, presume to know the mind of God? We don't know. Paul knows what he was trying to say, but he's not telling, right? So here we are left trying to work this out. But whatever Paul meant, what he didn't mean was that God picks winners and he picks losers. He didn't mean that because he said just the opposite in First Timothy. And that's been refuted by Jesus and Peter and pretty much everywhere in Scripture we look. What he meant was not that. He says so himself. But more importantly, when it comes right down to it, it just really doesn't matter. We can't know what God knows or doesn't know. And more importantly than that, we don't need to know. We can live our lives exactly as intended without having to know with certainty something like that. Every time you see a motion picture, every time you see a film, there's already at least thousands of people who have seen it before you, right? The screenwriter has seen it. The actors have seen it. The editors have seen it. There's probably many moviegoers that saw it before you did unless you saw it like the first, first run. But no matter when you see a movie, someone has seen it before you. They know the ending. They know the outcome. Does that make any difference to you? The suspense you feel? The engagement that you feel as you watch that movie frame by frame? As long as you don't know what they know about the outcome, you're experiencing that movie in real time, as if for the first time. we got a Super Bowl coming this afternoon. Maybe you can't watch it when it's live. You're working until nine o'clock, but you're Recording it, as long as you stay away from every (laughs) radio station and every person who's screaming at the top of their lungs. When you come home, you can watch that game as if it were brand new and live. Right? This is the way it is with God. What does God know about us? Does he know everything? Does he choose not to look in certain directions? What's going on? It doesn't matter. Whatever God knows or doesn't know about us, we can live our lives frame by frame in real time as if our choices actually mean something. Because you know what? They absolutely do. Your choice is going to mean something to the person who's right next to you. Whoever is in your blast zone is going to be absolutely affected by every choice you make. Our choices have meaning. And this is, I think, what Paul is trying to get across, what Jesus is trying to get across whatever god knows he's not forcing the outcome and we must live now as if every choice every relationship every embrace really counts with the power that we have to choose now you're going to remember all these points today are you going to remember everything that i said you're going to remember that the phone is going off right now you probably remember that of course you're not <laughs> But at least I hope that you can take one thing home with you today. You want to believe in predestination? you got a lot of good company. Go for it. Have at it. That's fine with me. You want to believe in free will as the primary description of a relationship with God in life? Then you've got even lots more company with that. No worries. It is up to you what you decide to believe. But the real question is, what is the effect of what you believe on your life and your choices, and your attitudes? Does what you believe make you look and live and love like Jesus? If the answer is yes, there's nothing broke, don't fix it. If the answer is no, or the answer is I don't know, or the answer is I'm struggling and I'm trying to figure things out, then as Paul would say, go through the process of renewing your mind so that you can actually transform as Jesus is pulling us through. What does Jesus' life look like? What does the record in the New Testament and the Gospels tell us? Jesus is always responsible for his choices. He's always active, never passive. He doesn't blame anyone for anything. He takes responsibility. He moves in the present. He is always actively trying to help others, teaching, trying to get them to move to a new place in their life. He's living his life in real time as if his choices were real and as if his choices actually make a difference. Does your belief system allow you to do that? Does your life look like that? If so, then your belief is true. True. Because it has the effect. And if not, Paul is calling you to call into question the belief because it's taking you someplace you really don't want to be. Look at the effect of your life. Look at the effect of the belief and the faith that you have. Jesus said you're going to know them by their fruit. What is the fruit of what you believe? And then take this home, this basic thing. The effect of all this predestination talk is that God intended from the very beginning that each one of us, no matter who we are, no matter how we came up, no matter what we say we believe or where we live, that every single one of us would be part of his family. And that's something that we can all take to the bank and understand that it's the basis for everything. God predestined Predetermined that we should all be part of the family. His choice is made. That's to me what predestination means. His choice is made, always has been. And the only thing that's left is what about us? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the choice. Thank you for creating us in your image, which means that we have the ability to make a choice for love, to be able to love as you love. As we struggle through trying to understand enough so that we can take the next step, help us in that, Lord. Help us to be willing to lay down the things that are not helpful, that are limiting, that are keeping us from you, even if we've been carrying them faithfully for decades. Allow us the chutzpah. Allow us the courage to set them down and to find something else that will take us closer to you. Thank you for always leading, drawing, desiring, and wishing that we were with you, that you could hold us and shelter us like the hen shelters her chicks. Make us willing to come under that shelter and find out what it feels like to come home in you. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Never let us forget we can only do that because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand.